sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. This is that time that we get to visit with the Dirt Doctor and uh, kind of a long-distance visit today. Howard, good morning. Good morning from uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Actually, Fletcher, North Carolina. That's where the event is. It's a little town outside of uh, Asheville. So, uh, yeah, we're here today going to speak at two o'clock or so and then another talk tomorrow you know it's uh, surprising but i have a fella and i want to say it's joe calls me fairly often from north carolina so he if somebody comes up to you and tells you that he's a fan from texas it it may be this show or your shows which uh which extend all over the country but uh is this another good big event do they have lots of folks uh, turn out for it i don't know i haven't been over there yet oh okay um, it's at the um, uh, Agriculture Center, the WMC Agriculture Center in uh, in Fletcher. So it's on the website. Just go to Mother Earth uh, News, and uh, that's you know the late obviously the latest uh, event that they uh, have. I've been here once before. So uh-huh. Had an interesting time yesterday getting here. It's for uh, first experience I've ever had uh, flying. We. Uh, we had a full throttle lift off three times before we landed. Really? Golly. There was apparent there was apparently a micro burst and the first time we were just a few hundred uh feet off the ground and you know, full throttle and uh lift off and go around and took the pilot a while to say what was going on. Everybody was a little <laughs> tense and there were there were some uh it looked, it was really, really rough and everything. And, and just before he touched down, it got kind of weird. And so he pulled up, and I'm sure it was a fear of wind shear or something sure. like that. We flew around, and the next time pulled up again, higher up. And we did a third time. But obviously, it was a little bit nerve wracking by the time we finally got on the ground. And then I had another interesting experience I've never had driving over here. It's about at a Two hour, a little over a two hour drive from Charlotte, where we landed uh-huh. to uh, Asheville, and the traffic was just horrible. We were creeping along; I was averaging uh, less than a mile an hour, and I knew there was a wreck or something. Finally, got to it, and a big tree. Uh, you know, the the drive is just beautiful. Oh yeah, big trees ranging from you know seventy to hundred feet, and a big tree had fallen over the uh, uh, highway, and it blocked off all but one lane of the highway and they were had fire trucks and everything just barely getting it cut away by the time i got there but it just a tree basically shut down the entire uh highway well probably another of those microbursts but as you well know and uh the things that they that we call trees in texas are small shrubs compared to what grows in tennessee and north carolina and when they have a tree you know it could be a real tree and i can see uh with stormy weather wow well i'm i'm glad you're safe and sound yeah that's uh uh, i'm sure the pilots are busy we had a similar experience one time flying into 
L.A. It's actually we're on the way to New Zealand, and uh, the pilot never said a word. He pulled up. He went around two or three times, and when we finally landed, we noticed that there were fire trucks all the way up and down the runway, and I was hoping it was for the plane behind us, but uh, upon questioning the uh, the flight attendants as we got off the plane, they said, oh, yeah, said, well, the light, when they put down the landing gear, one of the lights that should have come on didn't come on and we didn't know if the landing gear was going to collapse when we landed or not and i said well golly it would have been nice to have some idea of what to prepare for but yeah i like i like those uh those planes that take off when they're supposed to and land when they're supposed to and i always think about what a old experienced pilot said one time when we aborted a takeoff and stayed on the ground he said you know i've learned a long time ago it is a lot better to be on the ground wishing you were up in the air than it is to be up in the air wishing you were back down on the ground so <laughs> i'm I'm glad you're safely back and uh, hopefully that'll be the the only time you experience anything quite like that but i i can only imagine the white knuckle flyers yeah, it was a little bit um, different, and the pilot never came back on and talked about the uh, the second two, uh, uh, you know, non landings. But uh, everybody's cool. The, the airport was interesting too; jam packed. The the um, travel out there. I, I haven't been on a flight. I don't think in the past two years that hadn't been one hundred percent sold out. And yep. the airport was just jam packed. Yep. So Business is good. They're under construction uh, there at the airport and adding on to it, and it's a big mess for people uh, coming this way. But uh, anyway, we uh, a lot of the people that, that come here, a lot of people do fly in, but a lot of people that come here drive in and sure. come from uh, long distances. So it's going to be uh, interesting to see who we meet today. And so which are, what two talks are you giving today? Well, I'm giving the one on fabulous trees uh, today, and tomorrow it's going to be the pest control. Very good uh, talk. The uh, I'm using the fabulous trees talk to talk about how to plant properly and how to maintain properly in the uh, exposed root flare because all of the fabulous trees in the world of course, have <laughs> dramatically exposed flares, so it just all fits together real well. And some people haven't seen good photographs of the. 3,000-year-old Montezuma cypress in Oaxaca and my uh, ginkgo in the backyard and the champion pecan and all that kind of stuff. Well, I, it should be a great talk and uh, be a fun place to be. I hope you'll have time to to get out and, and good weather to get out and, and look uh, at at more of the beautiful things that are out there it's just you know i spent part of my growing up years just across the line over in east tennessee and uh it's it's just a a pretty place to visit i wouldn't want to live there again but uh it's fun to go for a weekend every now and then and uh you're gonna help a lot of people over there perfect now too so yeah. yeah Well, anyway. one thing I wanted to uh, to talk a little bit more about, we uh, right at the end of the show last week, we were talking about how you and I both just think weed block fabrics and all are one of the worst things you can possibly use and, and never, I, I just don't know any reason to ever use them. But um, I talked to people trying to suppress some of the stuff that's underneath when they're putting down, you know, just mulch or, or gravel or something like that and uh one of the things that's gotten popular around here is just putting down several layers of newspaper or cardboard or things like that knowing that it'll rot away fairly quickly what do you think about those practices and do you have a better suggestion 
Well, no, I recommend that. And then one more thing added to it. In fact, I just wrote my Dallas Morning News column about the subject since we, you know, started talking about it last week. And I've got great photographs of ball cyphers along Central Expressway in Dallas where uh-huh. the uh, fabric is just an absolute eyesore disaster <laughs> mess. You know, so, uh, yeah, the, the fabrics are solid uh, plastic sheets, even one, uh, in my opinion, don't work. They waste your money putting them in. And if you have to put down some kind of barrier, yeah, paper of some kind, I've recommended that for a long time, if you, especially if you have Bermuda grass right. uh, contamination right. in a bed. It's one of the few things I'll do. Put down a bunch of molasses first, then several sheets of paper or some uh, cardboard, and then... Well, and, and also some corn gluten meal. Corn gluten meal is the thing I add to the puzzle because that takes care of when you've disturbed the bed, no matter yeah. what you're planting, oh, yeah. whether it's vegetable garden or landscaping or whatever, when you've disturbed the bed, you're going to have some weed seed germinating. Well, what's the best thing for that? Well, corn gluten meal is, and it would function as your organic fertilizer in the, that case too. And then put your mulches on top of that and uh, the uh, paper and then the shredded uh, native wood chips, uh, wood trimmings on top of the uh, uh, paper or the uh, cardboard. That that really works very, very well. Oh yeah, and I, with the, go ahead. The the plastic is a problem from several standpoints. You know, it kicks up the temperature. It it uh, clogs up and creates anaerobic situations in a lot of cases. It um, uh, you've got to cut through it if you're planting more plants in that area. You know you're having to go through it and violate it. It doesn't work. You know it, it works less and less the longer you go, and then finally it starts coming up and showing and being a big eyesore. But the biggest thing is that it disturbs the most important part of the soil, the surface of the soil, mm-hmm. right under the mulch. That's where the the ideal biological activity should be. The ideal temperature should be the ideal. Uh, everything is right at the surface of the soil under the mulch. You know, it's where the mulch is breaking down and becoming uh, compost and, and uh, releasing the uh, humic materials and the biological activity is just furious and everything. If you put a piece of plastic right there, it really fouls it up. Paper, I don't do the paper myself, but yeah. if you want to do something, the paper definitely works uh, better because it doesn't foul up all that stuff. Well, anybody that's ever pulled any of it up and looked at that kind of just packed, muddy, anaerobic mess that's underneath weed block fabric, uh, you can just see. And and thinking that you put that down and then cut a little hole and stick a plant in there, how's that plant going to grow a root system? I just, I don't get it, but I... It is one of the most common things whenever anybody tells me they've got rock down or anything like that and plants around it aren't doing well, I always ask, well, what's underneath the rock? Did they put down landscape fabric? And it's, oh, yeah, yeah, they put that down to block all those weeds. (laughs) Well, number one, it's not going to block the weeds. And number two, it just totally screwed up the soil. So uh, that's, you know, uh, I rank that up there pretty high about common landscape problems. And I guess it's something we always need to be sure that we're talking about when somebody comes in and says they have a problem uh, after asking if the root flares exposed the second thing I ask is have you put down landscape fabric or anything and it's amazing how often the answer is yes well it's so important to have the proper gas exchange you know the carbon dioxide out and the oxygen in and that yeah. fouls it up there's a, 
There's nothing about it that's that's good other than, you know, the people selling this stuff. <laughs> there are some commercial paper products that come in big rolls and mm-hmm. they're they're kind of efficient to use and i guess you know uh, again if people have to use a barrier of some kind that's the way to go yeah very good and the other question that to talk about fertilizer just a little bit you were talking about something that uh, earlier that i wanted to kind of uh, get into and clear up a little bit um we don't really agree on something on garrett Garrett juice. Garrett juice is an excellent fertilizer, and it's um, it's one of those things where I probably it's my fault, I guess, because I haven't made that clear enough. But the the reason it has caught on as much as it has is that some people are using it and nothing else as a fertilizer. In fact, I did it for about two years as an experiment. There's there's really nothing that's a better fertilizer for interior plants. Oh, really? Up to and in, up to and including uh, orchids. You know, we had we had that real funny run-in some years ago when somebody called me and said, "Howard, I use Garrett juice. It's the only thing I use, and blah blah blah." But I use it on some orchids, and man, I'll have orchids looking bad and going down and everything. And that was back when Malcolm and I were first formulating this stuff, and. Um, so uh, he got paranoid about it, and we actually put on the label not to use it on orchids. Well, after that, I started experimenting with it, and I tried to, to replicate what this listener had run into, mm-hmm. and uh, we couldn't do it. We used it at the recommended rates. We used it at heavier rates. We used it three times the rate, and we never saw anything but positive things. Judy started using it on orchids at our house, and it was it was it was when I first realized how great it is about setting buds and bringing plants back into flower. The second time, about the same time, I guess that fellow in Houston I ran into one day he said, "Hey, I want to talk to you about this Garrett juice." I said, "Oh boy!" I was there doing a book signing. <laughs> and I thought he was going to ring me out about something. He, he said, "You know, I've been in this business for years and years." And I have never had anything that I've used to bring the uh, garden, the plants at the garden center into bloom like this Garrett juice. And he asked me about it and how it worked and everything. We talked about it. And so we started then, you know, getting around to uh, understanding that not only did it function as a good foliar feeding material, mm-hmm. which is a fertilizer, sure, uh, but drenching it into the soil uh, really worked well, too. And like I said, we started doing some experiments where – we didn't do anything but the Garrett juice. And we've got several commercial projects where all they do is put down one commercial dry application of something uh-huh. a year. And it can range from corn gluten meal to, to, you know, one of the blends like Good Nature or Medina or whatever. And then spraying on a regular basis. And that regular basis can be on a monthly basis. It can be on a quarterly basis or if the budget doesn't allow it, you know, once or twice. But it... Um, it absolutely functions as a root stimulator, without any question, uh-huh. as a bud set and flower set, and as a mild fertilizer. It's got an MPK greater than, than uh, compost and compost tea and um, earthworm casting. A lot, so, yeah, it's got, 
you have to give that more of a try. I've always used it in combination, but I just have never thought of using it by itself because it works wonders, you know, when along with a fertilizer. I just have not thought of using it by itself as a fertilizer, but it'll start next week in my greenhouse and, and we'll give it a try. Now, I, I don't normally recommend it by itself, but it can be. I, uh-huh. I just wanted you had made the comment that it's not a fertilizer, and it absolutely is a wonderful fertilizer from a whole bunch of different uh, standpoints. And it doesn't matter whether it's the homemade stuff, the original sure. formula of compost tea vinegar, molasses, and seaweed, or whether it's one of the commercial versions. The commercial version, and uh, Medina makes actually two of them at this point, I think, yeah. uh, one of them contains mycorrhizal fungus and, and bacteria, and that one for sure is a is a very powerful. And that's uh, that's the Garrett Juice Pro. Yeah, we have that. Well, I stand corrected. I just did uh, had always thought of, of it as an activator and supplement rather than a direct fertilizer. But uh, my, you know, the well, proof is in the results. Brought it up. It, yeah, it reminds me that I need to talk about it more often because if you didn't understand it exactly, there's a whole <laughs> lot of other people that don't. I need to do it as a Dallas Morning News column and a uh, newsletter and, and the whole deal. And we we continue to add more and more stuff to it. We've had good luck kind of on and off through the years using uh, lava sand mm-hmm. in the, the mixture in the beginning and getting the, the fines from the lava sand into it and getting that paramagnetism we're on the verge again of of having that really high paramagnetic uh, lava sand on the market and easier to get the same company they've totally reorganized and are doing it in a different way and and it looks like it's finally going to get going it's got a paramagnetism of up in the Oh, 1,200 to 2,000 range instead of the stuff that's currently on the market that's around 100. Well, I can't wait to see that. That'll be a a good thing. The other thing that I would, as you write more about it, I think, and it could have been where the guy supposedly ran into problems before, but I I think it's, and I try to do this all the time to emphasize to people that the apple cider vinegar is a critical part of it, not only because of what the vinegar does, but you do not want the distilled vinegar that's and and i can see where that might cause some problems but just boy underline that apple cider vinegar because that's uh that's the right stuff to use there when you're making your own garret juice yeah that's a one thing i I ran into early on when i was talking about vinegar in general and the vinegar in the garret juice is some of the critics were saying you know Garrett's just making stuff up. Vinegar's not a fertilizer, and I don't. I, that doesn't make any yeah. sense either because it's loaded with trace minerals. I think that one of the reasons it works so well in the soil and in the human body and in animals' diet is that uh, it's just so loaded with trace minerals and stimulates good, uh, healthy biological activity. You know, the main thing that we're trying to do with everything we do. <laughs> At life in the soil is the most important thing it's got. Yeah, it, uh, that, without that, nothing else really uh, makes too much difference. We're we're starting to have more and more people finally contacting us too uh, about the root flare. You know, you and I talk about how important it is all the time. And now, for whatever reason, people are starting to contact me from all kind of different places, saying, "You know, I did that sick tree treatment, and of course, did the the uh, root flare exposure is the first." And it's amazing. I didn't have any of the problems that I had last year, you know, on and on. I've, I've got um, 
I, I think I told you the uh, lacy oak, the mm-hmm. woody, uh, the woolly galls came back on it, and it dawned on me that it had silted back in a little bit. So yep. I uncovered it again, which I have done to the ginkgo several times because of where it's located. The water comes down from the house and silts it in every time we have a huge rain. So I have to continue to take it back off. But once you do that, it goes away again. And the second time it came back, the the galls, it only happened in a few places on the tree, not the uh-huh. whole tree. And it happened on the side that it filled in. <laughs> That's that, And it's so interesting how the roots on one side of the tree have so much to do with, you know, what goes on on that one side of the tree. I'm going to be interested, too. I And you might have heard my caller earlier talking about he always got aphids on his crepe myrtles and telling him that only about 99% of the crepe myrtles out there are buried too deeply. And I'm and, and aphids have gotten to be a bigger and bigger topic of conversation on crepe myrtles and i'm almost willing to bet that if people will do the right job of exposing the root flares the aphids won't ever show up because they're a stress-related insect absolutely and that goes for those uh white scale that everybody Mm -hmm. you know is so concerned about and everything i'm even thinking that some of the invasive species and i'm going to be talking more and doing more research with my uh, buddies up in the boston area and other parts of the country but i think that the uh the uh, hemlock adelgids and the uh, uh, you know the green uh, beetle that we're getting the locust the mm-hmm. emerald ash borer and stuff like that can be controlled with the same thing that we use for oak wilt and rose rosette and and the Italian cypress uh, disease problems and all that it's a sick tree treatment yeah and getting the uh, relieving the stress from the, the plant all. As I work on this uh, uh, publication that I've been working on to uh, get the diseases and the insects all organized, I've been looking at some of the other books that cover the subject, uh-huh. and it's fascinating. Some of the best ones that identify the diseases and talk about uh, you know, wh- what it is and everything have terrible advice on what to do. They yep. basically just say use a labeled pesticide. Yep. You know, that, that's, for the most part, the only uh, advice you get from these other uh, publications, you know, the ones that aren't into organics. Well, it, it still amazes me. I went to the first Oak Wilt conference held in Texas. It was held up in Fort Worth. I can't remember how many years ago and listened to all of, you know, all the stuff the Forest Service spews out. And they haven't changed their their tune one iota. They are still no. And and I remember old whoever one of the former politicians, Gibb somebody or other, was in the state legislature, and he was all upset over how many trees he was losing west of Fort Worth. And uh, but they haven't changed one iota in what they're telling people about oak wilt and a lot of these other problems. And uh, I, it's just it just makes you scratch your head as to have have you not really opened your eyes as to what is what is the underlying problem we're dealing with here? And and you you told me about it. The um, there were some A and M guys that came up with the answer. Yeah, uh, with the research showing that the the sap in the trees of the the trees that didn't get infected had higher biological activity. There's the answer right there. Yeah, yeah, and even some of the things you know, you that. Don't, like pythium that we normally think of as problem causers are perfectly normal in those trees. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the, the you know I still am running into it kind of on a regular basis uh, when I talk about cornmeal. People say, well, you know, A and M doesn't recommend that. There's this lady uh, PhD, I forget her name, uh, that's written all this stuff about the fact that it's a scam and it doesn't work and all that. <laughs> all you've got to do is try it, yeah, and see how well it works, and you'll see that it's not. Uh, made up. It's a real thing. Trichoderma. They'll talk about trichoderma, but they won't talk about it coming from cornmeal. <laughs> and it's just uh, they can't change. The paradigm is uh, just too tight. They're boxed in. They just cannot. They can't admit that they've been wrong and that there's a better, uh, better way to go. Yeah. The one thing that we are recommending that's a little bit different now. Um, is that uh, it? And this comes from our arborist friends that are, you know, and a lot of them have, thank God, have just totally quit using that uh, propicanazole injection uh, deal because it does. They realize it doesn't work, but they're seeing just as good results by making that corn water tea we talk about with uh, maybe a, a cup or so of cornmeal and a five-gallon bucket of water applying that liquid let it stand for you know overnight at least or maybe 24 hours and then apply that liquid within 10 feet of the trunk and they say that's where most of the uptake is happening and they're getting the same or better results than using a much larger quantity of the dry cornmeal and for folks with lots of trees this has been a real popular thing because they're not going through nearly as much and uh um, and seem to be getting exactly the same results, putting it on, in effect, as a liquid instead of dry cornmeal, which I think is is very interesting on trees. Now, I still tell people, put the dry out underneath your roses, put it around your tomato plants if you have early blight. But I may do some experimenting this year with uh, using the liquid as a drench. But uh, that that's one thing our arborists have told us that I think has simplified it for a lot of people. Well, it's fine. Whatever works. Um, I don't totally agree with that. I think you do a lot more good treating the whole site, and the dry stuff is easier to put out. So uh-huh. I, I just continue to, you know, use the things that work the uh, the best. Because most people, we're seeing this in Dallas now again. Uh, brown patch is just popping up all over the place. Safe yeah. take all patch is popping up all over the place. A&M is recommending peat moss, which is nutty as it can oh, yeah. be, yeah. Uh, compost and organic fertilizers, and the whole ground cornmeal will work a whole lot better and, and at a, a much lower price. Yeah. But if, uh, you know, whatever is working, uh, that's great. I'm glad to get any feedback that anybody uh, has. It's curious because the feeder roots are, are beyond that point. So it's a little bit of a head scratcher about physically how that's um, working, how that uptake is is uh, working so efficiently, as they're saying. Well, it and it is. And, and I'm with you. You know, on brown patch and things, I'm still dry. The only place that, I, that we've really started recommending the liquid is around trees. But they've actually got, and I'd, I'd have to go back looking at the data, the amount of material that's taken up and how fast it is taken up and through the trees. And uh, it's it's real interesting. I'll see if I can find any of it. In written How are they form. measuring that? That's I, really interesting. It's it's uh, you know however they they do it they they're actually able to calculate the rate at which water moves up through the xylem from the bottom of the tree to the top of the tree. And I I guess I need to go back and ask them how. But apparently it's uh, it's some 
reasonably well known and fairly accurate process. But I'll I'll, I'll find out uh, more I'm about that. The last time I talked to David, David's his name, right? Oh, uh, David Vaughn is. Yeah, he's with Best Arborist. Yeah. I know. The last time I talked to him, the reason I'm still scratching my head about this is that he told me that whenever he does root flare exposure, he always does the cornmeal too, and that's where they're seeing the great mm-hmm. uh, uh, increase, you know, advantage, uh, which I uh, certainly agree with. But I think what's really doing the work is the root flare exposure. <laughs> I think there's so a lot to I that think as well. A little, little bit there that we still need to talk about and look at a little bit more well i couldn't agree more and he has now retired from in effect the um the actual physical tree care and he's just doing strictly consulting he said when you get to be seven years 70 years old you shouldn't have to work this hard but he's got a little more time out just doing a little bit more experimenting and research along with the consulting business so uh, i hope he's gonna i hope he's gonna be able to help us even more because he has the contacts and uh and and knows a lot and and he's changing he's changed a lot of things too i think he's become much more of a believer he was certainly a big skeptic about it at first and uh just every time i talk to him he's more in favor of it the funniest thing you know the first real example of it i saw was a friend up in uh in the hill country who was a pig farmer and i had him putting out the cornmeal and the pig poop and david said all us arborists are just play it praying that it doesn't turn out to be the pig poop that's doing all the good but <laughs> anyway it's well, all uh all that stuff works but i i think it the main number one thing is the, the flare exposure he was even telling me when i was talking to him last he was still using propoconsol injections no. also no they've so stopped all that I, now i think that's absolutely a waste of time and throwing money away and We've we've seen that proven on a big old project here in Dallas. I've told you about it. They were doing it on a commercial project and right. ran out of it before they did the last few trees and just exposed those trees, and they were the ones that did the best. Yep. Well, no, they've they've totally quit using it now from what I understand. So uh, Good. Anyway, yeah. well, listen, you uh, enjoy North Carolina. I hope your talks go as I know they will, and uh Make a few more converts in that part of the world. And as always, we'll continue this uh, discussion about a week from now. See you back in Texas. Enjoy it. And see you next time. And happy flights and uh, all between now and then. I hope the return trip isn't, uh, isn't nearly as interesting, shall we say. Howard, as always, we do appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Bob. Certainly. Bye. Mr. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor. DirtDoctor.com is his website, best uh, best site on the Internet for information that really is applicable to our area. All right, it's going to be Linda and Chris and Jean and Larry, and Linda's up first. Good morning. Can you hear me? Just fine. Oh, great. Um, I Brief question, uh, what is the sick treat treatment, just all the usual mulch, compost, good fertilizer, that kind of thing. Is well, and it, it involves, uh, you know, other things that improve the soil, like lava sand, like green sand, exposing the root flare. Uh, cornmeal is normally added to it. Your best bet is to go to dirtdoctor.com, and you'll see the complete discussion of the sick tree treatment. Okay. Um, that's what I thought. I wasn't sure. Uh, I was listening to NPR, and I heard two different programs 
One was an almond orchardist in California, and you know how horrible that drought oh, yeah. has been out there. Yeah. Okay, he got results by letting the weeds, uh, actually he planted them, I think it was alfalfa <laughs> and uh, clover or something, uh-huh. under his almond trees, and everybody was telling him how stupid he was. You're not supposed to have weeds. You're growing almonds, not weeds. Uh, but his trees were not drought-stressed. And immediately the climate program in California, they helped him because this is also sequestering carbon. Well, sequestering uh, carbon plus it's uh, those are both legumes which take nitrogen from the air and build uh, a number of products in addition to sequestering carbon. It's a very good way to go. Yeah, and he would mow occasionally. Um, the other one was out in the Midwest where they're trying to reduce flooding, you know, get rid mm-hmm. of the water. Um, and it, the same thing. Uh, they were recommending there that everybody had little lawns or big lawns. Let them go to weeds, you know, put wildflowers in there so it looked better. Uh, and that would really soak up the water and reduce flooding enormously. Uh, oh, yeah, creating bioswales and, and, yeah, things like yeah, that. Swales, yeah. yes. Yeah, China has something called sponge cities, and they've got swales, <laughs> roof gardens, perforated paving. Yep. Um, and then the, the third thing I said, which is not directly gardening, but that wetlands uh, sequester 40% more carbon than do forests. This is on NPR. I, that doesn't surprise me. I haven't heard those numbers, but uh, the nutrients in uh, forest, uh, forest soils, even in rainforests, tend to be relatively low in nutrients, mm-hmm. so they're not good at sequestering things. About the only way they build the soil is you know, through building it from the top down, so to speak, with leaves and things like that is a good mulch on the surface. But real good points, Lynn. I appreciate the call. And... Uh, let me, uh, I've got to move a little more quickly here because we're getting toward the end of the show. Good morning, Chris. Yeah, it is towards the end of the show. Hello, all you weird organic people <laughs> like us out there. Yeah, what's going on today? I got a really weird question. Okay. A couple years ago, I, a couple years ago, I came across what was organic fertilizer being dumped by a company that is no longer in business, okay? Mm-hmm. It says organic blah, blah, blah on the bag. I got like 20 bags for 10 bucks or something. Really nice. Yeah, it's okay. It's nowhere near as good as uh, growing green. But making a leachate out of it, Mm -hmm. uh, dumping into like a five-gallon bucket or something, or some of it in there, let it soak for a while, and then using that over, or using uh, instead of uh, has to grow, or even using, uh, this one brain fart, uh, growing green and putting it in the water and then using that liquid. Can that be done? Obviously, well, it's not real effective because the okay, well, it, it you would get the benefit of many of the things that they add to it because realize that Medina adds humates and lots of other things that are not on the label, so I'm not supposed to talk about them. You would really get the benefit right. of those, but the basic nutrient material is not water soluble, and that's what makes it so good in the fields because it doesn't leach out it doesn't cause pollution problems and it has much more staying power so you could make a good uh i guess you could make a good tea out of it but don't discard the basic material because that that that's not going to put nearly all of its goodness into the liquid form as opposed to using hasagro liquid and all that okay that was that was my main question on that oh number two on exposing the root flare since you're all everyone's on that now yeah I'm the guy with a tree 
that's probably 80 years old, and the trunk was buried four foot down. I finally got the final bit of it exposed after years <laughs> through all the rock and all that. And uh, tree's doing really much, much better. Yeah, and it probably lasts another 80 years now. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm already, and I've noticed it's growing just wonderful. I'm still getting the little, uh, uh, not root sprouts, because they're growing out of the base of the trunk now a little yep. bit, just taking those out. Because now they're finally, hey, look, we're out and exposed in the air. You're doing so it, it right. Work. You're doing it right, Chris, and keep it up. All right. Looks like you know, we're pretty well here. We're going to finish up the show with Gene and Larry, and Gene is up first. Good morning, Gene. Hey, Bob. Good morning. Morning. A couple questions. Is Greenlight still in business? No, Greenlight's been gone a long time. Greenlight uh, sold out to uh, Monterey. Uh, Greenlight had actually, before they they called it quits, uh, had gone 100% organic. And uh, it just, their chief chemist, uh, Barney Grimm, old friend of mine, passed away. And uh, um, they just decided it was best to combine with a bigger company. Monterey is a fairly big company. company when it comes to organics and unfortunately some other things too but uh no green green lights uh left i want to say probably uh eight or ten years ago okay i have some bioorganic home and garden insect spray lucky you is it still okay <laughs> it is absolutely okay hoard it keep it it's one of the few things in fact it's about the only thing we ever found that would uh could safely be used for killing ticks once they got up and out of the ground it's a blend of basically several different herbal oils especially thyme oil but uh it's very stable product should be just fine okay is if when this is gone is there a replacement product you know, they keep saying they are going to come out with a new bioorganic, but I have yet to see it. Um, I, probably uh, there are some other good thyme oil products out there on the market, but there's uh, nothing quite like the bioorganic. And um, gosh, I'll try to I'll try to find out which are the best of the best. But thyme seems to be the most important of those. Uh, herbal oils that was in the bioorganic and uh i'll see if i can get you the name of a product or two that is fairly high in that okay great and another question we, uh, i have a wheelbarrow that i need a cascading flower for and it's an am sun okay i think we're me? we're pretty much warm enough now for some of the periwinkles or venka if you prefer it will cascade down several inches. It's sort of a mounding plant, but it does cascade down from. Combine that with some potato vine that will cascade, you know, many, many feet. And I think that for summertime, uh, that would be one of your best combinations. Uh, how about blackfoot daisy? Not impartial sun. Blackfoots need pretty much full sun. Full sun? Okay. Yes, sir. Okay, I'll let you go so you can get on with somebody else. Appreciate I it, appreciate Thanks it, Gene. Help. Thank you, sir. Okay. You do. All right, we finish up with Larry. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Uh, we put uh, a Medina on our grass milk because I haven't been able to take care of it for two years. Uh-huh. And I am now. Uh, should I put that down again in all this summer or something? Because it does a good job, but I don't know if I need to put some more down later. About every three months, if you're if you're just trying to maintain a nice yard, I recommend once in the spring, once in the fall. Um, you can use it if you're looking for just the absolute best results and have the time to do it. I think four times a year is just fine on the growing green. Okay, 
Thank you very much. That all you need today? That's all I need. Well, Have a good afternoon, what's left? You get out and do it, and we'll talk again.